Everybody Googles everything, especially potential customers or employers, and a business or personal online reputation can make or break you. If negative search results or reviews are impacting you, Webamax is here to help. Our proven process restores your online reputation quickly and effectively, and it matters. Don't let negative results control your narrative. Visit GoWebamax.com and fill out a brief confidential form to see how we can help. Remember, if you aren't paying attention to your online reputation, someone else is. GoWebamax.com. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad... To learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. It's time for Cover 2 Broncos. Just a couple dudes breaking down scheme, film, and the numbers. Now, your hosts, Joe Rowles and Jeff Essery. Thanks for listening to Cover 2 Broncos. I'm Joe Rowles. And I'm Jeff Essery. Hey, we just want to thank everyone once again for all the support as we've gotten this podcast up and going. We've had a ton of fun. Joe and I is hanging out here on the pod and appreciate everyone for listening and sending in questions and comments and just really feeling the love from Broncos country and just football fans in general. So thanks for listening. Uh, quick reminder that if you have any questions, be sure to hit us up on Twitter at Joe Rowe underscore NFL at Jeffrey Essery or at Cover Two Broncos on Twitter. We'll be happy to um, address them for you. So, what do we got going on today? Well, we had the combine. I think uh, it's kind of worth our time to talk about that a little bit, especially with the uh, the speculation that uh, for the fa- the last few months that the plan has been to buy a defense and draft an offense. And I kind of think the uh, the formal interviews kind of give us a sign of what what might be coming, and then there's been a lot of speculation about what Denver's looking to do in free agency. So, yeah, absolutely. So. I mean, the NFL community kind of has been a buzz over the last week, all combine, all the time. And what's interesting is you not only get insight into the draft prospects, but because everybody kind of coalesces there, and you've got people talking, and that's when people sometimes you know jump into that tampering window a little bit and start 
negotiating free agency, even though it's technically, you know, not, you're not supposed to, but you know, word starts to leak out and people definitely talk to agents and stuff at the combine. So you get a lot of good just insights in general into the NFL landscape and how the off season will shake up here at the combine. So yeah, I mean, Joe and I figured we'd sit down and chat through it all uh, because there was some news that came out from Denver on the free agency front. And then really, if you look at Denver's official visits that they had during the combine and we've got about, you know, 20 ish of those have come in from the official ones that we've had word on. It really starts to paint a picture of what Denver is going to be going after in the draft. Yeah. And, and one, one reason too, that I think it's actually really important to look into this is because Denver in the last two years really made an effort to bring in guys that they did spend a lot of time meeting and getting to know and vetting. And then also the fact that this is the first year in the combine where teams didn't get 45 uh, formal meetings they had 30 and so those ones that they had is are kind of more important yeah and so i mean we have a full list i think it's been floating around on twitter we'll put it in the um the post on mile high report that accompanies this podcast but do we want to do a quick run through of the entire list really quick so denver denver interviewed seven different receivers they talked to lavisca chenault jerry judy Brandon Ayuk, Henry Ruggs, CeeDee Lamb, Jalen Rager, Justin Jefferson. And then we know they talked to T. Higgins and Denzel Mims, uh, Gabriel Davis. They talked to four offensive tackles, Jedrick Wills from Alabama, Tristan Wirfs, Ezra Cleveland, and Austin Jackson from USC. They talked to four running backs, J.K. Dobbins, Cam Akers, Keyshawn Vaughn and AJ Dillon. They talked to three inside offensive linemen, uh, guards and centers, uh, Robert Hunt, Shane Lem- Lemieux, Cesar Ruiz, and then they talked to three defensive linemen, Jafon Kinlaw, Ross Blacklock, and Josiah Coatney. And then we know they talked to one kind of a hybrid player uh, for Denver's scheme. I would assume that he's an edge, and that's Derek Tuzka. And that's 22 of the 30. I've been kind of waiting, hoping to find out who that last eight are, because if you notice, they didn't talk to any corners and any linebackers. And I have a hard time believing that. We haven't heard anything yet, but if we do, we'll be sure to let you know. Yeah, and the DBs ran on the um, – they were one of the later days too, right? So I know some yeah. of the, the – um... The wide receiver notes and stuff of those meetings came in earlier, and so it might be something in that regard. Yeah, I think it has to do with that. I think it has to do with the fact that the combine for a lot of the media, it's it's a marathon. It's kind of almost like summer camp in that you get all excited for the first couple days. You're there. You're hanging out with all these people that you only see once a year. Everybody's out all hours of the night. You you kind of notice it when you're listening to podcasts and like different people chiming in from the combine. By Tuesday and Wednesday of last week, a lot of them sounded like they've been chain smoking for <laughs> 20 years because they've just been out all hours of the night. And a lot of them were starting to talk about the fact that they were so tired. The news started out with like gushing and it kind of slowed down to a trickle by the end. So we may very well find out those last eight over the next couple days, or we might not. It might just be a mystery. So hopefully we find out. But we'll see. Yeah, and I think, I mean, it already gives you, you know, just the guys that you mentioned. Specifically, we can jump into the wide receivers first. I mean, Denver talked to every top wide receiver 
pretty much at the combine that's coming out of this draft. And so, you know, you can pretty much bet on it that Denver's going to be targeting a wide receiver in either the first or the second round. And potentially, depending on how things fall at 15, you know, they may be trading back into the first round to get one of those top guys. Yeah, I most of the guys that they talked to at one point or another were projected to be top 50 picks. The only one that I really saw that wasn't kind of in that range was Gabriel Davis out of UCF. Uh, most people consider him a day three kind of size speed guy. I think he's six foot three, ran a four, four, uh, four, five, 40. Uh, he kind of compares to like a Darius Slayton type in the fact that he's really good on a vertical plane, but he's pretty raw as a route runner. So I could yeah. definitely see him being that slot fade kind of guy. Yeah, and it's interesting because I was surprised that he ran a 4.5 because he is kind of that, you know, take the top off vertical speed guy. Um, but I think, you know, to your point, it is more of a long speed. He's more of your vertical threat that you just put in the slot or, you know, put on the outside as a Z and have him run straight for <laughs> his rookie year as you're continuing to develop, to develop him. In uh, Pro Football Focus, uh, I saw this earlier yesterday. They actually gave him credit for, I think it was 20 receptions over 20 yards, uh, which was tied for the most in this class. So he definitely brings that vertical element to the to the field. If they go two receivers, but they only invest highly in one, Gabriel Davis is definitely going to be a guy to pay attention to later in the draft. Yeah, but it's really interesting that there isn't – they, you know – they didn't talk to guys like a KJ Hill or even, you know, some of the mid round guys that you would think would potentially be there in the third or whatever. And so it, it looks like, you know, they're going to be targeting wide receivers in those top two slots really probably on day one is, is when you'll see them really go after them. And so it becomes interesting because, you know, the word we keep hearing, especially after Henry Ruggs and his massive performance at the combine, you know, you, you think he, C.D. Lamb, and Judy are potentially gone at 15, and so then the decision becomes, what do you do there? You know, and everybody in Broncos country is talking about that of, you know, does Denver trade up to try to get one of those three guys, or do you go ahead and pull the trigger at another wide receiver at 15? Or, you know, there's a lot of different options, but I think the one thing we can be sure about is that they're really going after that guy to compliment Cortland Sutton and um, be another, you know, weapon in the pass game. Benjamin Albright from KOA reported this, I think back in December, that Denver loves Henry Ruggs to the point where he would be shocked if he made it to 15 and didn't go and didn't go to Denver. So I would consider 15 Henry Ruggs floor. So if you see mocks where Denver passed on him, I I don't put any stock into him. There's been enough word about it that there were rumors last week that the Eagles are looking to trade up to get above Denver. The fact that Ruggs ran a 4-2-8, everyone knew he was going to be a fast player. But what what he kind of brings to the table that a lot of other fast guys in this class don't is the fact that not only is he super, super fast, but he's going to come into the NFL as a complete receiver. He needs to improve as a route runner a little bit, but his hands are good. He He's good vertically and kind of laterally. Um, and he's just he's an explosive player on the level that, that like most of these guys are going to need some development. Ruggs will probably have an instant impact. Yeah, and I hate to dig too deep into the, you know, the Henry Ruggs hole because everybody's talking yeah. about Ruggs like ad nauseum. But I do kind of throw up just a quick game out there, a question for you of you talked about Philly potentially trading up and there's been word of, oh, you know, what happens if Denver wants to try to jump up to get him? What's your max that you would pay to trade up for Henry Ruggs? I wouldn't. 
I love so many of the receivers in this draft class. I love rugs. And I think rugs offers something that basically no other receiver in this class does, but I think you could get 80% of rugs and Jalen Rager. I think you could get 80 ish percent of Henry rugs in a Denzel Mims, but you also get the height. So I don't think that it makes sense to give up draft capital in what this class is because it's looking like a very deep class at things Denver needs to get a receiver. It just doesn't make sense to me. Yeah, I, and I don't disagree with that. I think the one thing that you mentioned, and I, I'm, beginning, I'm beginning to develop this, and this is a bit of a tangent, so I won't go down it too far because we got to stay into the combine stuff. But it's interesting that you know Ruggs brings something that nobody else in this class brings, and you put him on your team with Cortland Sutton, and you potentially have a differentiator and Noah Fant to that point. Um, if he continues to develop, you have a differentiator that not a lot of people in the league have. And that's what Kansas City has with Tyreek Hill. And it's something that I've been, it's been bugging me ever since Julius Thomas left Denver is that I remember the, um, the feeling that I had when Julius Thomas was breaking out and having his year with Peyton Manning in 2013. And it seemed like everybody in the NFL was jealous of what Denver had. They had, you know, everyone was like, man, if only Denver had, or if only our team had that talent at wide receiver and a guy that could, you know, be a mismatch like Julius Thomas. Denver has been missing that. And and then in the Super Bowl, it was a similar deal in terms of on the defensive side. Everybody was like, man, if we had the pass rushers that Denver has, or if we had that pair of cornerbacks, I think Denver needs to get back to something like that. And I've been formulating this theory. And maybe we could just talk this on another pod at some point. But I've been formulating this theory that, you know, everybody's trying to figure out what is the it factor that these Super Bowl teams have. And I think other than, you know, an elite quarterback, it's you know because you could point to years where an elite quarterback hasn't won the Super Bowl. But every year they had the team that won or the teams that consistently get in there, they have something that nobody else in the league has. It's not just because you know, there's so, so much luck and so much randomness that goes into who actually makes it to the big dance and, and can actually win the Super Bowl. I think you've got to be able to carve out a niche for yourself within the NFL. And, you know, the Chiefs have done that, obviously, with Patrick Mahomes. But I think the weapons that they've put together, they're the envy of the NFL right now. And so, I don't know, that's my, that's my soapbox or my tangent no, I- of... Denver needing to find somebody and whether that's, you know, you pay a premium to trade up for rugs to get a guy that nobody else in the league has, you know, um, to me, that's, what's attractive about him. No, I, and I get it. And again, if Denver does, and there's been rumors already starting to circle that Elway's going to be trying to do it. Uh, if they do it, the idea is they're going to have to trade above Oakland or not Oakland, but Las Vegas. And I get it again. I'm not going to be mad if Denver ends up with rugs. I'm just worried about what they're going to pay to get him. My whole point on this is I think you're right. I think what teams that win consistently in the NFL have, they have some sort of stability at quarterback. You basically need to have that in the NFL. The haves have quarterbacks. They have nots. If they get lucky one year, the bears in 2018 had such a good defense that they made up for the fact that their quarterback was not great, but to win consistently, you need a quarterback. But then beyond that, you need mismatch weapons, either on offense or defense, hopefully both. And it doesn't have to be a receiver, but it has to be something. You have to have something that causes other teams to sweat. You need a coach who can make take advantage of that. And then you need enough depth to t- kind of survive the, the battle of attrition that is the NFL season. And that's why I think personally that trading up cap trading capital to get something that you don't know is a sure thing is a bad decision, just because that depth is so important. 
But at the same time, I do believe that Ruggs is going to be a mismatch weapon. So I can see the rationale for either way. I just think this receiver class is so deep that it doesn't make sense to me. Like, yeah. I don't advocate for it, but I get it. Yeah. Because, again, I, I love this game. Yeah, totally hear you. And so, I mean, I think that brings up a good point that, that you talked about is because you love this wide receiver class so much. So, I mean, give us some quick highlights. You know, we, we mentioned the seven names that Denver has talked to. We don't have to go through each of them in super depth, but, you know, give us some highlights of some guys that you liked that Denver talked to, you know, maybe things you learned about them at the combine or, or things that we saw potentially that we weren't expecting. Definitely. LaVisca Chenault's injury issue. Uh, if you hadn't paid attention last week, he ran a really poor 40. He didn't do any other drills. After the, the 40, it ended up, we ended up finding out that he had a core injury and he's going to be out. If he falls out of the first round, he's at a point now where if he's there in the second, I'm going to be pretty happy if Denver drafts him. He's still risky, but the upside with LaVisca Chenault is ridiculous. Uh, Jerry Judy, he checked some boxes, but he kind of disappointed in terms of he, he didn't run as fast as people expected. He didn't jump as far and as high as people expected. Uh, there was a rumor coming out yesterday that the NFL is not as high on Jerry Judy as a lot of draft Twitter is. So that might be something to kind of keep an eye on. Here's the thing though. He's also the best separator on tape that I think I've ever seen in a receiver. I wouldn't put too much stock in his agility scores. The thing with the combine is the agility scores in general were kind of junk. I could go on a whole rant about it. I've been talking about it all Do it, week. Joe. Do it. The, the big thing is with the, the combine scores, and again, this is my theory. I haven't, I haven't gone back over all the data with it. I can't remember another combine where I've seen so many premier prospects have bottom 10 percentile agility scores, and it's kind of weird to the point where, like, when it first happened, Jalen Rager did it, and it was like, oh, well, Jalen Rager put on too much weight. That's why he can't move laterally, but he can move laterally. Watch his tape. Well, Jerry Judy did the same thing, but he wasn't heavy. And then you look at some of the other guys that did the same thing where their their agility scores were just really low. And it's weird, but also the NFL moved the entire lineup because of TV and the agility drills were at the very end of the night. So for some of these guys, they get to the, the dome six hours before they have to run and they're just sitting around waiting. So that's one of the reasons why you saw a lot more like pull muscles this year. And it's also one of the reasons why I believe that some of the drills, like the numbers are actually going to be a lot lower than what the pro days are going to be. So I would keep an eye out to see what a lot of these players numbers look like once they can work out in their pro days. And I think this, that's going to be a lot more telling. Yeah. That's a great point because there was actually some word that came out from some of the agents as well, that they were considering not letting their um, clients run in the combine next year, if they keep it, you know, at these prime time levels that they'll just have them hold out, you know, measure and go down there, but then hold out on most of the drills for their pro day. So, you know, and some of that may be posturing because they did that last year as well when they were talking about potentially moving it to prime time, but it's not just um, speculation that the schedule affected some of these guys' times. I mean, I'm sure Jalen Rager and Jerry Judy's agent and, you know, Derek Brown's agent and all of those guys who did have poor agility numbers, um, you know, I'm sure they're not happy about the schedule if that was affecting it. Definitely not. Well, and it's, it's kind of telling to me that I was reading a couple different things on NFL.com with combine winners and losers. And on those, they tend to, they cite all the numbers that really impress them. Like the four, four forty, the 45 inch vertical. You didn't see anything about three cones. You didn't see anything about short shuttles. And that's, that's to me is kind of telling 
So I wouldn't worry too much about the agility scores yet. But that said, Jerry Judy's workout was kind of, it was kind of disappointing. I think his spark was under 30%. That said, again, you watch the tape. He's insane. He also fits Denver's offense really well. He plays inside, outside. I, I have him as my wide receiver one right now. It's him and Ruggs. Ruggs is going to be my receiver two. I love Ruggs too. Throw a quick note on Judy too. I think um, one of the guys, I think his name is uh, Cameron Soren. I want to make sure I give him credit. A super good like college scheme guy was talking about, you know, one of the ways too, to evaluate some of these guys is especially on a team like Alabama where they've got so many different weapons as you look at who the defense was focused on stopping. And for Alabama, for their big games, like against LSU, they were focused on stopping Jerry Judy in terms of the way the defense was scheming and stuff. And so you could see how, you know, what dif- what defensive coordinators saw as Alabama's top weapon. And it goes to your point of Judy being the number one guy. The, the fact that he can separate so well, that kind of stuff, that, that translates. And he has that. And his, while his agility scores, again, were kind of low on tape, he just makes people look foolish. So I just, I, I trust that. Um, but one guy I am kind of concerned about is Brandon Ayuk out of uh, Arizona uh, State. He ran a four five forty. It's not terrible, but it's not nearly as good as you were kind of thinking it was going to be. His wingspan's really great. He's five eleven, but he basically can like scratch his knees standing straight up. <laughs> um, he had a really good forty. Uh, but he he he's a late developer. He came out of JUCO. He basically didn't get the ball until after Nikhil Harry left. And then a lot of his production came on slants and screens and then goes. So his, his route running is it's okay, but it's not, it's concerning. I don't know if I would draft him in the top round. I, I wouldn't feel comfortable with him in the first round in the second round. I, I could get on board because again, he's a very quick accelerator. Um, obviously there's CD lamb. CD lamb was probably one of the biggest losers in my mind. Not because I still love his tape. I still think he's ridiculous. I have him as my wide receiver three just because I don't know if Elway is going to love him as much as I do. Uh, he doesn't neatly fit into what Shermer does in the same way that Judy or Ruggs could. But at the same time, like DeAndre Hopkins, people knocked his speed. And obviously DeAndre Hopkins is DeAndre Hopkins. So if Denver ends up with CeeDee Lamb, I'm going to be pretty darn excited. Yeah, and one thing on CeeDee Lamb too is, you know, the 4-5 – you know, he's not, speed isn't necessarily his game. And so to me, that's not as big a deal like you talked about. But one of the uh, interesting notes was Henry Ruggs in his, you know, 4 2 40 that he ran, his 10 yard split was like in the one, I think it was like 1.43. And CD Lamb's 10 yard split was actually not far off that, just a couple hundredths of a second off of rugs from a 10 yard split perspective. And so when you look at what CD's game is in terms of that, you know, intermediate type stuff, he's not your long field stretcher or burner, but he's got the speed and the explosiveness on the, that first 10 yards. So I thought that was an interesting note from, you know, you'll see if you just look across the top of the main numbers. Oh, I agree. I think that's something you see on tape too, because there's a couple different plays where CD lamb is basically corralled by like six defenders and he still scores a touchdown. It's his game tape is just silly because he can go up for the ball in ways that just no one else in this class can. And he has like this short area burst. That's just crazy. So again, I would love him. I just don't know if Elway is going to be on board in the same way. I've, I've kind of banged on Jalen Rager too much. I do like him a lot. I have him as a first round guy. He's my wide receiver six. Now 
but it's not because I don't like him. It's just, I think he's a little bit riskier than some of the guys above. I've watched more tape on Rager than anybody. I don't necessarily feel as comfortable with his hands. He makes more body catches than I really like, but his best catches are insane. It's just, he, he'll drop stuff in traffic that I just kind of don't like that. But again, if Denver drafts him, I'm going to be pretty high on the fact that he's really, really explosive. He could be a punt returner. He's he's a, a screen and go guy in the sense that if you get him the ball in space on like smoke screens, he's going to do a lot of damage. He can also go on a, a slot fade and really destroy people just because he's so explosive and can get up really high. So I like him. I just he's a little bit scarier. Yeah, agreed. Uh, I think Justin Jefferson is an interesting one to me that Denver met with. I watched some tape of him. Um, over the weekend and specifically his game against um, watched some of his game against OU as well. And it's not that they have, you know, a great defense, but I was kind of watching both on either side, CD lamb and Justin Jefferson, but he, he made some interesting physical plays too, you know, cause he played, he's, he's primarily a slot guy, um, but he was dragging guys into the end zone and, you know, was impressively strong after the catch. I thought um, from what I saw when I watched some of his tape, I like him a lot. What, what's interesting about Jefferson to me too is he he's been slept on in this class because he he's boring in the sense that he was kind of he was on the best offense in probably college football history. He has Joe Burrow, but he had a breakout age at nineteen. Like so, he was doing stuff before Brady was there, and he he I I think he would settle into Denver's offense as a reliable number two, and he's a good enough route runner. He's obviously he's sneaky athletic, and he's a contested catch guy that. You could rely on throwing him the ball in traffic and he'll come up with it. If Denver was looking to upgrade on Deshaun Hamilton, Justin Jefferson could take that spot and basically hold on to it for the next 15 years as long as he doesn't get hurt. And I would feel pretty pretty comfortable with it. I would be very, very happy if Denver comes away with him. And he's one of those guys that I think a lot of people would be like, who? But he's great. Uh, I kind of hope Denver does consider him. Talk to me about Denzel Mims. He's one of the guys oh, that you've man. really been banging yeah. the table for and really were kind of early on. Um, I mean, I, I know I saw him down at the Senior Bowl and really liked him from his performance there, but I think be, even before that, you were pretty high on him. So I'm ready to risk it all for Denzel Mims. I'm not even going <laughs> to lie. Right after the Senior Bowl, I went back and I watched all of his tape, and I had him as my wide receiver four then. He was above Rager and LaVisca Chenault. And I liked him in like the 20s. If Denver like traded down a little bit and still got him. At this point, I didn't think he was going to be a 4-3 guy. And his three cone, again, all the three cones are kind of like you have to watch the pro day too. But you're in a 6-6-6 three cone. He's also six foot three, 210 pounds. He has a 38, I think it was a 38 vertical. Like he's a ridiculous athlete. And then you watch the tape. He needs to get better as a route runner. And he has a couple concentration drops on tape. Like that is a thing. Like that is... Definitely a thing to keep in mind for Denzel Mims. So if he goes a little bit lower, those are probably going to be the two concerns. But the thing for me is guys who are that athletic, if you can get them to figure out how to run routes, they have all the other tools. Like they have the stuff that you can't teach. And there's only one receiver in this class that I feel more comfortable throwing a ball up in traffic and kind of counting on them to come down with it. And that's CD Lamb. And CeeDee Lamb at one point was my wide receiver one. So if Denver can come away with Denzel Mims, the idea of Mims and Sutton together with Noah Fant in between them is just ridiculous. Like, I'd be crying. I'd be so happy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I love the pairing. And it's interesting that, you know, everybody was 
really high on Denzel Mims for his three cone, which, you know, understandably because it was really good for, especially for a guy, his size. So I was doing a little bit of digging on Cortland Sutton's three cone and man, I guess I completely just blanked on that or, you know, had forgotten about it from two years ago, but he ran a six, five, seven, and it's a top 12 in like combine history for a three cone for in, in, that's not even adjusting for size. So a guy that his, his size able to do that um, just shows you again how ridiculously athletic Cortland Sutton is. But to your point, to have both of those guys on the outside and the catch radius of Mims paired with Cortland Sutton would be, you know, red zone nightmares. Well, and that's the thing too. Is you look at Cortland Sutton, Cortland Sutton came to the Broncos as a size speed guy who is considered pretty raw. And then uh, Coach Azani... Uh, Denver's wide receiver coach to see what he helped Cortland Sutton become in year two. And hopefully, you know, going forward, like I would trust him with Denzel Mims to get the the route running and the hand things kind of sorted out. Cause again, Cortland Sutton as a rookie had, I think a 50% uh, catch rate, which is pretty bad. Like that's, that's alarmingly bad. And he had some drops. He had some bad quarterback and play too. <laughs> he did. Well, but that's the thing though. So did Denzel Mims. Yeah. Yeah. So true. It's just Good one point. Of things. I just, I, I Denver has a coaching staff at this point that I would feel pretty comfortable with some of these really, really like really high upside guys who you kind of want to make sure they get like one thing ironed out. And Denzel Mims is one of those guys. If, if route running is your biggest concern with Denzel Mims, I feel perfectly happy with him at 15. If Denver decided to go that way. Yeah, that's a great point. And I think that's a good comparison, you know, to the, you know, the breakout year that Cortland Sutton had. And so, um, you know, definitely expect that it could potentially be replicated. And it's nice to have great coaches that you know can develop those guys. It's kind of like when we bring an offensive lineman in, a little segue into the offensive lineman section. But when you bring an offensive lineman in and you expect, hey, hey Munjack can develop them, I love that we have kind of a wide receiver coach that, you know, did that with Cortland Sutton. And we could expect to do that with a guy that we bring in. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Anatomy of an ad. Subconsciously trigger emotions through music. Perfect. Define an opportunity. Imagine talking to millions of people across the U.S. like I am now. Identify a problem. Creating an audio ad is time-consuming. Offer a solution. Utilize cutting-edge AI. Imagine creating all that in under 30 seconds. Well, we did. To create this ad, to learn more about AI in the audio industry, download the white paper from audiostack.ai. Speaking of O-linemen, though, you like that? You, you like the little segue there? I do. That's good. <laughs> well, I think so, it's important. This is the other position that Denver Denver really spent a lot of meetings on early guys. So it's notable. Yeah, and this is another one of the, the you know, classes, again, top-heavy. It's not as deep as – I'm speaking specifically about an offensive tackle, but it's not as deep as the wide receiver class, but it does have some talent in the top of the draft. And so that's another interesting one because you potentially have four guys who could go before Denver picks at 15 or, you know, depending on how things shake out, does one of those guys drop to them at 15? And so um, – but, yeah, I mean, they met with 
all of the not all of the top guys, but at least a couple of the top guys in terms of you know you had Tristan Wirfs that they met with, and then they met with Wills as well, and so. It's interesting because, um, you know, it looks like Denver has their tackles solidified, at least for this year, on paper. But that's the biggest thing is, you know, a lot of people are saying, oh, we don't necessarily, some people are all in on tackle. And then some people are saying, well, we already have starters at either tackle slot. But if you look at last year, I mean, you didn't really have starting level quality tackle play from Denver at either tackle slot because James was hurt and Bowles is just was not good. And so... I think on paper you've got two starters, but I really like that Denver is, you know, not being shy about going after some of these top tackles, especially in a class like this. Definitely. And one of those things, too, uh, at one point when Fangio and Elway were talking to the media early uh, last week, it seemed kind of telling that Fangio was talking up some of the young players on the on the offensive line, and he never mentioned Garrett Bulls. And then when Elway was talking about the offensive line, he ended up bringing up the fact that they do not plan to get Give Garrett Bowles fifth year option. They don't plan to pick it up until after the draft. So they're, I think they're leaving the door open to if a guy comes to them, they'll basically start the plan for life after Bowles. And that's why I think a guy like Tristan Wirfs makes so much sense. I don't think there's any way Denver's going to get him at 15. I, I honestly think at this point, like I was running a, the Draft Network's mock machine yesterday, and there's, there's some mocks there where Tristan Wirfs falls to 10. I would be very, very surprised after the combine he had. He he didn't. Everyone expected him to have good workouts. He te- he jumped higher than Jerry Judy and Ceedee Lamb did. Like, <laughs> like that's not. No one does that. And he's three hundred pounds. Like he's he's a hundred pounds more than either one of them. So yeah, his numbers going out his, of the top 10. his numbers would have been. Um, would you say I think it was like fiftieth fiftieth percentile for wide receivers. That's if, just ridiculous. If, if you were to test him as a tight end, he would still be considered an elite athlete. <laughs> That's how good he is. And and again, the, the thing that people kind of lose sight of, I think, with Werfs, and this is something I look back at with him, is everyone, like, er, before he measured, people were talking about the fact that he might be better at guard. Well, the thing is, he measured in, he has long enough arms. If a team, if a team doesn't consider him a tackle, the coaching staff is, I'm going to worry about them. The thing is, because Werfs has that ability, if if he fails a tackle, like let's say he looks like Bulls at tackle, you could slide him into guard and he'd probably be a very, very good guard. So it kind of raises his floor in the sense that it's not like he has to start at tackle or he's going to be a huge bust. He'll probably be a good player no matter what. And that's that has value. Yeah, I've always liked that about Werfs, the, the position versatility. Just to hammer home his athleticism, um, I pulled up his 10-yard splits as well. And again, this is a, I think he's 6'3". This is a 6'3", 200 or 320-pound guy. Um, his 10-yard splits are on par with Chris Jones and Quinn and Williams, both the defensive tackles. And it was better than Geno Atkins and Dominican Sue, J.J. Watt, and Cam Jordan. And all of those guys had great you know, 10-yard splits and are super athletic. And so, and he weighs more than probably all of those guys. So... Yeah. It was just absolutely ridiculous. But it's interesting, too, that Denver was looking at, um, you know, a couple of top tackles. But then it also, they're kind of, it feels like testing the waters on some of those mid-round guys, too, in terms of the tackle positions and then also uh, at the um, guard and the center slots also. The, the tackle that really caught my eye is Ezra Cleveland. At one point, he was considered a day three guy. He's out of Boise State, so he's a small school guy. 
he kind of showed all the tools, but he just didn't really compete against top guys. But then there was reports last week that the the Cleveland Browns are worried that if they miss on Tristan Wirfs, they're going to have to somehow trade down to get Cleveland because he's not going to be there by their second round pick. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens to him because that's just one report. But then uh, they also looked at Austin Jackson, and Austin Jackson's essentially – he's a traits over tape guy. And the fact that I watched his Iowa game and I've watched his Utah game, they're awful. Like he's not great on tape. But he also donated bone marrow to his sister before the season and he tried to play through it. And, again, he's a crazy athlete. But uh, in terms of the other linemen that they looked at, and I think this is really interesting, the two guards they looked at, Robert Hunt and Shane Lemieux, they're both power guys. And you and I have talked about this before, Jeff, that we were kind of wondering if that right guard spot, they were going to try and look for a guy who could pull. The fact that they're interviewing and looking at Robert Hunt and Shane Lemieux, Lemieux and the fact that they're, they're picking up the tender on Elijah Wilkinson, to me that shows that they're looking for a power guy there. Yeah, and it's interesting because it just continues to reinforce what we talked about when we talked about Pat Shermer and his offense. And the ability to have a guy that, you know, I mean, they they really ran most of the, they did such a diverse running game last year too, and we expect them to continue that. But they really ran most of their pulling game to the right side. And I think that's twofold. Um, and I don't know that we've ever voiced this that we, when we talked about it. But one, I think it, it, it does hide Garrett Bowles a little bit because you're not running to his side. He's staying on the backside of a power or a counterplay. Um when you're running the the OF counter and you're not having him pull, I don't think I think Denver rarely had the ran a GT counter, um, mainly because I think they were, were trying to hide bowls on the backside of some of those plays. But then also Dalton Reisner is such a good puller, and so you want to be able to flip that too and not just have to you know have your running game go to one particular side and be able to do that from either side. And so, you know, for me, I was making the case for a guy in free agency like a Joe Tooney or something like that. But I think it does make sense. Tendering Elijah Wilkinson, it makes total sense. I think he brings great depth and he brings versatility on the line. I'm not super sold on him as a the one starter at the guard position. I hope they continue to try to improve that position and maybe have him as a fallback option. But I think it is interesting that they're looking at guys that potentially profile similar to Wilkinson. I do too. And the other thing, I think this is really interesting. As far as we know, they did not look at Makai Becton. If they, uh, you kind of combine that with what you just said, and the fact that I and I, I don't have it up in front of me, but I remember reading what, back when Munchak was with the offensive line coach of the Steelers, they ran a pretty right-handed offense one year with the fact that they ran a lot of power going to the right, and it, and then you look at the left tackle prospects they looked at, and a lot of them are pass blocking mobile guys, but then they also looked at Jedrick Wills, and Jedrick Wills was a right tackle for. Alabama and he was a powerful run blocker. There's some rumors that teams are concerned about him being able to pick up a protection scheme at an NFL level. So it kind of, it kind of goes back to what you're saying that they may honestly be looking to kind of keep the same type of idea with their running game going forward too. Even if it's not bulls, it might, it might. And again, we might have to explore that later, but it's just something, it's a kind of a theory. You just kind of stirred in my mind that they may very well kind of want to design the running game to basically be, Right-handed rushing, blindside protection is really stout. Yeah, that's an interesting thing. I think we could explore that as we continue to, you know, flesh out what the 
the offseason will look like. I mean, you bring a good point about the running game. I think it's a good transition into who else Denver looked at, and that's running backs. And, you know, Mike Cliss even tweeted out that Denver would be potentially interested in running backs in free agency. They interviewed three, three, four running backs at the Combine. And so, I mean, it looks like Denver's in on trying to bring some more uh, talent to this backfield. And Mike Cliss made the point of, you know, they're trying to upgrade the running game to help Drew Lockout, which I think is a noble, you know, effort, but I'm not sure just getting a better running back is the right way to do that. You know, I mean, we just talked about it with offensive line. I think you start there with the running game, and I think that's, you know, one of the biggest misconceptions in the league is that, oh, your running game is not doing well. Get you another running back. Go draft another one or go sign another one. But, um, you know, I know both of you, you and I have pretty strong feelings on Denver's, uh, you know, seemingly strong interest in the running back position. Yeah, I hate it. I hate the idea of overpaying for a running back, whether it means in draft capital or in dollars and free agency. And it's, I get the idea. And as a, as a fan, it's fun to watch Derrick Henry plow over guys. But it's worth noting that Derrick Henry didn't look like Derrick Henry until this year when the Titans had a really good offensive line. And so when they have Derrick Henry on a rookie contract and they can afford to pay Taylor Luan, and Conklin and all these other offensive linemen, yeah, he's going to look good. But if you're paying Derrick Henry $9 million, it's going to be a lot harder to build the system around him to make the most of him. When the Titans were losing to the Chiefs in the AFC Championship game, they took Derrick Henry off the field. Like, And that's what worries me about some of these backs that Denver's looking at, according to uh, Mike Kliss. They're looking at Derrick Henry, who's a two-down power back. They're looking at Jordan Howard, who's a two-down power back. AJ Dillon is a, essentially a two-down power back. He's he's kind of built the same way as Derrick Henry is. Most of the backs that they're looking at don't really bring that that the receiving part to the game. And maybe they feel comfortable with Royce Freeman in that role. But I don't want to spend a, a second-round pick or nine million dollars on a running back if you can only really contribute when you have the lead. Yeah, and even if they can contribute in all facets of the game, I think you know a, a guy like a J.K. Dobbins is probably closest to one of those more well-rounded running backs or um, I know you like um, CEH, um, Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, who's potentially got some versatility as well. But, you know, I'm with you and I'm just not a fan of Denver taking a day two running back, just period. Um, I think the the data continues to show that that is an um, underperforming position when you're drafting it high and it's not just the idea that um, it's not just that Denver's whiffed at that position over the last several years. It's just the idea that, I mean, as we're talking about this, we have a third round pick in Royce Freeman who is two years into his contract. And now you've got to spend another second or another third round pick on a running back. Your, your other third round pick on a running back is still on the team. And so even without the running back value conversation, I don't have faith in Denver's ability to get a guy and plug him in and have him transform the running game because they they tried that with – I put out a tweet the other day because I got on my soapbox on it. Um, I think you and I have traded off for the last couple of weeks going back and forth on this over the last week. Um, but Denver spent a third-round pick on Ronnie Hillman, a second-round pick on Monte Ball, a third-round pick on Royce Freeman – and one more. Um, who else was it? No, Sean Marino. This was before Elway, but they picked him at friggin' number twelve, I think, overall. Yep. They picked um, him over Clay Matthews. Yeah, 
And so, and what have those guys done? And you could argue that a lot of it is just due to Denver's ineptness on the offensive line or just their inability overall on offense because the running backs are so dependent on the rest of, you know, the team. I mean, the biggest example I think of this is the 49ers and Mozart with his, you know, massive breakout in the playoff game, and he's an undrafted guy. And, and you know, you look at the the two biggest successful running backs for Denver has been C.J. Anderson, an undrafted guy, and Philip Lindsay, who was an undrafted guy. And that doesn't mean, you know, I'm not saying that predicts the future and that you just only need to find undrafted running backs. I just mean that the value proposition is so much better in later rounds for running backs as opposed to, you know, going high for them, and especially if it's with the idea that I want to upgrade the running game, you don't do that by picking a running back in the second or third round. The difference between top end guys at a position and the bottom tier guys at a position, or even average tier guys at a position, is based a lot of it. It's on skill. And the thing with running backs is the difference in an elite running back and an average running back isn't as high as the difference between an elite offensive lineman and an average offensive lineman. So your turn on investment when you're drafting a running back really high, it tends to be kind of low. The, the one thing that really differentiates like the top running backs from the, the guys is what they can bring to the passing game. It's just, it doesn't make sense to draft a running back high. And what worries me is that everyone's talking about how Elway listens to coaching staffs. And, and I was talking to you about this the other day. What worries me about when Elway leans on a coaching staff so much is I've read a bunch of studies that kind of show that coaching staffs, when they have personal power, they tend to favor those positions that are easy to scout, edge rushers, running backs, and linebackers. The difference between a first-round running back or a first-round linebacker and a third-round running back or a third-round linebacker, it's smaller than most other positions. So I'm going to be kind of bummed if they draft a guy like J.K. Dobbins, even though, again, J.K. Dobbins might be quite good. Just because I, I think they can make a bigger difference in the roster if they spend a second round pick on a Justin Jefferson if he falls, or if they get a Ross Blacklock if he falls the second round. That makes a bigger difference to the overall roster, I think. And you're trying to chase the Kansas City Chiefs. You don't need a running back that's a name to sell jerseys. Yeah, well, and I think, too, it's it's a bit of what you're talking about. It's a target share thing, too, or a volume share is – who is going to have the biggest impact on the field and you're spending a second or third round pick on a guy that at a redundant position, like you, unless you're splitting these guys out, you know, playing multiple positions on the field of like, you know, Philip Lindsay in the slot or running two back sets or something like you're not going to do that. Um, you're continuing to rotate. So you've got a guy like Philip Lindsay who's sitting on the bench while your third round pick or your second round pick gets his snaps and then you're, he's sitting on the bench while your other third-round pick from two years ago gets his snaps. And so you're in this weird timeshare where three guys with so much capital invested in them are competing for just one position, position's share of snaps as opposed to spreading that out over different position groups. And then, and that gets you know to my other pet peeve about the way Denver's is approaching the running back position, and it's really, you know this is just kind of, they fell into it, but Philip Lindsay is your primary running back essentially. And he brings that home run threat, but typically a guy like him, who's a smaller dude, you would expect him to contribute in the passing game, be that kind of shifty pass catcher guy that we hope he develops into. But right now he's not that. And so you've got a small guy who's not your bruising back. 
and he doesn't bring much in the passing game. And again, I'm not knocking Philip Lindsay, but that leaves two really open skill sets in the running back room. And so you see Denver trying to bring in that bruising, you know, two down back to your point that, you know, your short yardage guy, because one of the biggest areas that Denver struggled in last year was on third down and short, where you should be able to, you know, we can knock Rich Scangarello for the play calling all you want, but you should be able to line up and get two yards on third down. And Denver just wasn't able to do it. And some of that was because I don't think they had the, the back to do that. And so now you're drafting another back to fill in that skill set, and you still don't have a really solid third-down pass-catching back. You maybe potentially have Royce Freeman grow into that role. So you're really piecemealing the running back, you know, room together with one, you know, guys who do one thing really well. And to me, it's just it's not a good use of resources, and there's not enough snaps for them. Well, and the other thing that's worth mentioning too is Pat Shermer is going to probably throw the ball 60, 65 percent of the time. So if you're spending a second round pick or a third round pick on a running back just for the, just for short yardage, if he doesn't also bring something to the game as a pass protector or as a receiver, it's a really, really bad use of resources, especially when, again, there's a chasm between the Denver's roster and the chiefs. And we already talked about it with drew lock. Drew lock himself is not going to make up the entire difference between them. Denver needs to be smart on what they do with what the rest of how they build the roster. And I don't think drafting a running back high does that. It, getting a two down bruiser is easy. You can find a $4 million running back at the end of free agency. It happens every year. You've just got me depressed on this now. I'm just sorry. <laughs> you get no, me I, all worked up about the running backs. I, no, I totally, and, and, I'm and, totally again, with I, you. No, let's, let's, let's pivot. But I just, that's, that's where I'm at. And I think that's where you are at. And I've been arguing with a lot of people on Twitter about this. And it's just, that's what I believe. I've read a lot of studies on it. I know you have, we both watched the film. If Denver's going to invest in something to fix the running game, I think fixing the offensive line does more for them. Fixing the receiving core does more for the running game than spending a lot of money or resources on a running back. It's just that simple. So, But they also talked to defensive linemen. Let's move to that because that's a little bit more encouraging. They talked to, <laughs> Javon, they talked to Javon Kinlaw. Whoa, Javon Kinlaw. I love Javon Kinlaw. Javon Kinlaw is my boy, man. Like I, I think I have it. It's almost like Denzel Mims. I think I have Javon Kinlaw higher than basically everyone else that I know. Uh, on my board right now for Denver, I think he's four, and that's really high. The one big concern with Javon Kinlaw, keep this in mind, I don't know what his medicals look like. I don't get to look at his medicals. I'm not a doctor. But when you look at his tape and then you think about how he would fit into Denver's defense, he's he's the perfect defensive lineman for Vic Fangio. It. I can't. I, I I can't even tell you how happy I'd be if Denver took like Javon Kinlaw at fifteen, and then got someone like Denzel Mims somehow sliding into the second round. I'd be over the moon. I'd be I'd be dancing probably. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I got to see him up close in person at the Senior Bowl and was super impressed. Not only just with him as a young man. I mean, you you listen to his story and the things that he's been through. It's just it's super cool to see the adversity that he's overcome and, and, you know, what he brings to the table off the field as, you know, a locker room fit, a high character guy, you know, and I think it, that really fits with what Denver has been looking for from a draft, you know, the, their top draft picks lately as well. But the talent is undeniable. He's, 
an absolute monster of a human being on the field. Um, and just seeing him up close and in person, how huge he is. And he was, you know, ridiculously explosive before he came up hurt at the senior bowl. And so, you know, the idea of pairing him with the Bill Kolar and letting him just continue to coach him and mold him, you know, to me, gets me super excited as well. And, you know, there's a real chance that he could be there at 15, depending on how the, you know, it shakes out. And I think you know, we'll continue to explore this as we get, you know, into a more, and we're talking combine specifically here, but just in a, in a, you know, maybe a mock draft segment or something coming up on the, as the draft continues to come um, to approach. But there's enough guys that are top 15 in air quotes talents that, you know, could potentially go in the top 15, but there's more than 15 of them. We, you know, we were doing yep. the exercise the other day and um, I really think that's one that we should do and, and talk about on the pod here in a couple of weeks. But it, there, I think will be one or two guys that drop out of that top 15 group or top talent. I, I could, you could say top half of the first round group. And, you know, Derek Brown's one of those guys after the way he tested, he could potentially fall or, you know, maybe a Kinlaw falls out or maybe the one of the top four t- tackles come out. And so it'll be really interesting to see what's available there for Denver at 15. But one of the other things that, you know, we talked about a little bit is those other the, the other couple guys that Denver looked at and, the, you know, kind of their, um, I guess, where they fit on the defensive line in terms of the skill sets they bring. And it's interesting because you and I have both talked already a little bit about the fact that Fangio's defense, because he uses two safeties back so much, he really relies on the defensive line to be able to stack and shed or two gap. And what that means is basically they're not just shooting a gap a lot of times, especially on base downs. They're meeting a blocker. And then from there, they're then shedding the blocker to make the play. But then you look at the guys that Denver looked at at the combine and all three of them are really their their gap shooters. Um, and granted, Kinlaw and Blacklock both do have the tools to eventually be a very good two gapping player. But that's not like Derek Brown is a guy that I would picture is like that's what you're looking at if you're looking for a two gapper. Or if you're looking at like Davon Hamilton from Ohio State, like he's a he's a plugger and like he's very good at Leaky uh, Leaky Fotu, another guy like that where they're just they're big gap eating mammoth people. But Denver looked at. They looked at pass rushers essentially. Yeah, so that'll be really interesting. And we talked about this a little bit before we jumped on the pod. I think one of the biggest hinges in Denver's defensive line strategy. One, I mean, obviously, we'll see how it shakes out in free agency, but I think it depends on the development of Draymond Jones and what their plan is for him. Really, his role, because and you know, I haven't. I mean, I've watched some of him on him on tape just over the course of the season, looking at Denver's defense. But I haven't done a deep dive on Draymond yet. That's on my list of you know short list of things to do as we start breaking down the different position groups and hit the defensive line. But he'll be a really interesting one to see where he develops and where they kind of shift him in his game. And I think too, again, you know, they'll supplement in free agency as well with the word that they're potentially going after um, Reader too, DJ Reader. They're potentially interested in him. I believe that DJ Reader is one of their priorities. And I think it's important to note that because the whole thing with Derek Wolf and the whole thing with Shelby Harris, Shelby Harris was basically, they didn't even really try to resign him during the season when they had a chance. And then they're, they're now just letting him go. And then Derek Wolf, everyone kind of expected him back and they talked to him. But then all of a sudden during the middle of the combine, he started talking to uh, the Bengals, the Ravens, the Patriots, all these other teams. I think the thing with Derek Wolf and DJ Reader, it's going to be an either or. 
And I think the priority for Denver is going to be Reader. Yeah, and I think the biggest thing, too, is that he fills a hole that Denver didn't have. And we've talked about this a little bit, and we'll talk about it more next week as we dig into Fangio's defense, is he fills a hole that Denver had and they didn't fill last year. And that's a guy who can play defensive end and really slide around from that you know, three to five tech on base downs and then kick in and play the one tech to two eye, really that nose tackle position in sub packages. And that was what Akeem Hicks did last year. He was their kind of de facto main defensive lineman, essentially. He got the majority of the snaps on the defensive line when he was healthy. And it's because he played defensive end and then he played nose tackle as well, essentially, in their sub packages. And so, you know, you would think a guy like DJ Reader, especially the way he played in Houston, it was the same deal. He was on the field at the same time as their primary nose tackle. So he coming to Denver, he would play on the field at the same time with Mike Purcell as a defensive end in base packages. And then on four down fronts, he shifts in and is that main nose tackle role where he can, you know, two gap up inside and plug things up in the running game, even when Denver's in their nickel or their base set. And that really aligns with, you know, you saw Vic Fangio talking at the combine about them potentially going into more six DB sets. And so Denver doesn't have a guy, they don't have enough meat on the defensive line other than Mike Purcell to run a lot of six DB sets as kind of, or to base out of their sub packages really, and also defend against the run. And I think that was one of the big things that, killed them um, in the first four games of the season as well before Mike Purcell came on. But you don't want Mike Purcell as your main defensive guy in sub packages as a nose tackle because he doesn't bring enough as a pass rusher. And so I think Reader fills a, a massive, to me, hole on the defensive line and it allows Denver to really be, you know, you mentioned, I think you said it really well, Joe, before we jumped on the pod, it allows Denver to be more choosy and maybe more specialized on the defensive line with who they're going after aside from Reader. One of the things that Fangio does a lot too in this, in his past is his defensive linemen tend to take a lot of snaps. He wants that. He wants the, basically he wants starters to log starter type of snaps. And that's something that DJ Reader has been able to do. Basically, as he's gotten more snaps over his career in Houston, he's gotten better. And that's – it's almost like an NBA market share thing where his uh, his rate stats were good and then they've only gotten better as he's gotten more time. And so he's trending upwards. He's hitting his prime. He he fits everything Denver wants. And you you wrote about this for a roster review a few weeks ago. He's kind of like Akeem Hicks before Akeem Hicks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, and so I, I agree that he's probably one of Denver's top priorities. He's my number one free agent for Denver to bring in, probably maybe 1A, 1B with him and Byron Jones. <laughs> we, we covered that last week on the pod, though. But, yeah, I mean, I think he gives you a lot of options, and so it's interesting to see Denver's strategy start to come together, their free agent and draft strategy in that, you know, they're going after maybe the more gap shooter, pass rusher guys. Um to fill out, round out the rest of that defensive line while they're chasing Reader in free agency. And so, you know, um, as we wrap up here with all of those, with that in mind, I think, you know, we've kind of hit on the major position groups. Where does that, you know, where does that leave you with all the post-combine stuff, where Denver's targeting? Kind of give us just a quick, like, state of the team with what we know now. Um, Because I think, you know, we do have a lot more information just even than we did a week ago. I think we know that the Garrett Bowles is gone by 2022. I think 
if if they if they miss on all the left tackles this year and they don't get a guy that they feel comfortable with going forward, they'll pick up his fifth year option and then 2021 they're going to make that the number one need and they're going to they're going to find a left tackle. Uh, I think they're definitely going to sign a big running back to kind of compete with Royce Freeman. Uh, they're definitely going to take a receiver in the first two picks. I, I've heard a lot of rumors that they're going to trade up for rugs, uh, but they're definitely looking at receivers. Um, we know that they're looking for a power guard for that right guard spot. So, uh, and I, I think DJ Reader is going to be a priority. I, if they can come out of free agency with Justin Simmons back, DJ Reader and Byron Jones, like that's a home run A plus free agency. I would totally agree. And I think the only, the only thing that I would add to that is Denver has never been shy. And I think you mentioned at the, at the top of the pod, Denver hasn't been shy with their visits, especially over the last couple of years. They've kind of telegraphed where they're going, specifically with even just the position groups that they're looking at. And, you know, they're just – I kind of appreciate that. that they're, you know, people talk about all these smoke screens and, oh, are they just bringing in a guy to throw teams off and all that? I mean, it feels like Denver's just pretty straightforward with this. They're just – they're trying to target the guys they're trying to target, and everybody kind of knows who they're after. It's you know, The book's kind of been out on them over the last couple of years, and I'm okay with that, especially with the focus that they've shown. I mean, they've clearly tipped their hand on the wide receiver position, the O-line, that they're not happy at the tackle position and want to upgrade that, which I love. I'm not a fan of the running backs, but they've kind of tipped their hand on that they want to expand the running back room. And then we all knew they were going after a defensive line with Harris and Wolf walking in free agency. And so, yeah, I mean, I think – it'll continue to play out as free agency develops, but I think we have a really clear picture of where Denver wants to go, especially in those first, you know, couple rounds of the draft. It's going to be exciting. Yeah. It's the off season, man. You know, combines under our belt and the drafts just a couple weeks away. And so we'll keep it rolling here on cover two Broncos and continue to fill in this, you know, the off season time and um, review the team before free agency hits next week. Joe and I'll take on, Vic Fangio's defense, and then we'll continue to break down the different position groups as we get ready for the draft and and free agency. So stick with us. 